Hello and welcome to the First Intuition podcast. This is another special looking at a different industry and how finance works within that industry. So this is hot on the heels of our football and finance, fashion and finance, food and finance, so the trilogy of industries that began with F. We then looked at construction and finance and this time we're looking at the finance of education. So this is something that I've had a little bit of personal experience of uh, when I trained many, many years ago as an auditor. I uh, worked for a firm that audited um, some private schools and they also audited some of the university colleges in Cambridge. So if anyone knows Cambridge, it's made up of about, I think, 40 different colleges that make up the University of Cambridge. And we audited about half of those colleges. So I know a little bit how about how finance operated back then, which is about 20 years ago. I'm sure lots of things have changed. But more recently, since setting up First Intuition um, as a training provider, 10 years ago when we set up, we were very much like any other business. We provided a service, people paid us for that service, and it was run like a normal business. But over recent years, with the introduction of the apprenticeship levy, with more and more businesses turning to apprenticeship funding as a way to help train and develop their staff, I've had to become a bit more conversant in the the way that the government um, allocate funds and how we can draw down funds to cover the cost of that training. So I've got a little bit of knowledge, but I am joined today with an expert panel. Um, I'm, I'm going to go and introduce the panel first. So as I introduce each of you, if you could just say a few words about um, who you are, a little bit about your background in terms of where, how you got to where you are now, um, and what your kind of angle is on, um, on on finance and education. So I'm going to start with um, Sarah Goldsmith. So Sarah, you're one of my former students from many, many years ago, or I shouldn't really say many, many years ago, because it feels like it was just yesterday. But um, would you like to introduce yourself and just say kind of where you are in that kind of finance and education world? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you. So I... I've set up a limited company, um, Upgrade Accounting, um, after I, about seven years ago, I did end up, I was in the commercial sector and then ended up um, as a director of finance um, for a multi-academy trust and spent a few years there and then and then went back into social housing, which was another area that I worked in. Um, and then and then by accident, I ended back in this up in the sector again. I, I did a few interim roles, um, one in Birmingham for a trust that had had a, a, a key member of their staff leave all of a sudden. And they had a year end and they'd they'd had a, an audit where there were a huge amount of things that hadn't been done um, and the auditors were, were, were unhappy and sort of almost performance managing that trust. And, and I was brought in to kind of turn that round as quickly as possible to then hand it over. Um, and that really sort of gave me the idea that there is a need out there that these trusts sometimes uh, for one reason or another, someone will leave um, and they just need some support um, of a certain level for a, a sort of a short amount of time. I, I tend to not be with anyone for, for too long. I tend to get them to where they need to be and then hand it over to move on. Um, and you know that's resulted in me sort of setting up um, my business, and we're sort of four, I'm four years into that now, and it's it's been really varied. Um, I do try to kind of mix things up, so you know sometimes I'll be involved in a system implementation, or it is purely interim support because someone's left. I've been involved with um, doing a bit of scrutiny of trusts, 
And also I was involved in it, um, reviewing, doing some due diligence for a merger of some schools. I mean, I tend to be involved in primary and secondaries. I've never got involved in the further education side of things. So that's kind of my kind of niche area. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's kept me busy, <laughs> um, <laughs> essentially, which is, is what you want in a business. So yeah, it's, it, you know, and it's ever evolving, it, you know, it doesn't stand still. So, you know, trying to keep up with the pace of change um, is, is, is a challenge. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's an interesting sector to be in. I think quite interesting that you're kind of doing those interim roles, kind of acting as a consultant, you know, in some ways for, for a lot of different education organisations, should we say, for now. But your background is, is a commercial background. So you're used to working for you know, businesses where their overall objective is to make money and to generate value for shareholders. Have you found that transition to from working for a profit-making business to working for a business with slightly different aims? Have you found that quite straightforward or has that been a challenge for you? It's, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, the idea of multi-academy trust has been around a while now and I it's progress, you know, it has been slow. I would I would tactfully say um, with head teachers not really kind of feeling that they should their their school should be treated as a business, but all the kind of the expectation and the regulatory things and and what we what trusts have to submit is 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 not that different to a commercial business, um, and so it's 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 a, it's really difficult to balance, um, and yeah, it it does it does present challenges um you know, definitely and you know it is trying to sell it um, to head teachers that you know this is what's expected and finance in, in most sort of commercial businesses are are kind of highly regarded and you know trusts it, it you know we're kind of a they just see it as a, a little bit of a nuisance with you know all our demands and needing to produce this and needing this information and you know processes have to be followed and you know to to, to order things and yeah it, it, it yeah it, it is a challenge you know and that's that's you know it's, it's a quite a new sector really um it will take time um and yeah yeah definitely definite challenges there excellent and just just before i move on just because you mentioned it a couple of times i think some listeners might might kind of just say i don't understand what that is you've mentioned multi-academy trusts a couple of times so for for the uninitiated how would you describe what that actually means a multi-academy trust yes. okay so multi-academy trust is usually more than one school and that can comprise of primaries and secondaries um it could be two two primaries two secondaries and there's some some huge multi-academy trusts where there are lots of schools you know 40 50 schools um so multi-academy is just an all-encompassing it's like it's like the parent company um and so all these schools feed into that and all their their numbers would feed into that so there's like an overarching the multi-academy trust is like the overarching sort of pair you know parent company so like a, like a, as you say, a parent company, then with many subsidiaries, where each That's subsidiary right. is a separate school, whether it's a primary school or a secondary school. And That's and you say that some of these can be as big as kind of like 40 or 50 schools under That's that it. umbrella. Yeah, that's it. There's, there's some massive multi-academy trusts now. Um, yeah, and, and there's some smaller ones and 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 they're finding, this, the sector's finding that the, 
if you're too small, you're likely to be swallowed up by a, a bigger trust. So there's always a bit of a, a rush on whether they can merge and, and you know, join another trust where they feel like they're aligned. Um, so that, that they kind of, you know, and also have this tap into resource. If the bigger you are, you can afford to have a, a good fine, a large finance team, IT resource, human resources. Whereas if you're, if you're a, you know, a single academy trust, so one school, you can't afford to employ accountants and human resources professionals and IT professionals gov- and also governance professionals. Whereas if you're, you're part of a larger trust, um, you know, you, you know, there's, there's economies of scale there. Yeah. That, that's what I was thinking is that, is that, that you, you've got that ability to be able to share the cost of those expert functions across a number of different uh, a number of different schools whereas individual yeah. schools couldn't so does that mean it's quite you know is it more rare then to get individual independent schools operating on their own yeah I, I don't think there's so many single academy trusts around now um as there were you know everyone rushed to become a, a trust of some form um and with the view that they would then bring on schools but obviously you you have to have the buy-in of head teachers and the the trustees to kind of want to do that and if if those schools on their own are, feel like they're 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 doing well and they're succeeding and they've got a good offset there's some you know there's not always the inclination to want to join whereas if you're a failing school your hand will be forced to join a trust um and so you can understand that the idea is that that, that a, a successful multi-academy trust um should in theory bring up a failing school to sort of you know you know yeah. be good and outstanding um whereas you know if they're there struggling along on their own that's not going to happen so that's the idea and that they that that failing school could then have access to re- resource you know and 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 standards improved so that they're they're aligned with the other schools in the trust and getting a good offstead good to outstanding offstead excellent well thanks for that sarah i'm going to come back to some of those points in a minute but i'm want to just introduce the other members of our panel so i'm just going to move on to to phil so phil reynolds um good afternoon phil oh yeah those right yeah not too bad now phil i don't know if you remember but i i think i taught you for one one subject i think i think it was an advanced tax unit down in maidstone yeah um, maybe that's why i didn't get a good score <laughs> <laughs> i'm <only> joking <laughs> yeah tax was never my favorite subject i hate tax i'll be honest is that why you're then looking in the in the, in the school sector where yeah get away from not, it there's yeah. much tax to worry about so, yeah but then right, i married so, a, i married a tax advisor so yeah <laughs> Um, so Phil, do you want to give us a brief bit of background about kind of who you are and kind of how you got to where you are now? Yeah, uh, so I'm Phil Reynolds. Um, I've got kind of two hats these days. Um, so one is uh, I'm a director of my own company, which is PLR Advisory. Uh, that's only a year old. Um, but then my other hat is, again, but only for a year or so, has been as part-time uh, chief financial officer in a multi-academy trust of free schools uh in shepping kent um so before that i guess my journey has been obviously i was boy to man at one firm at one accountancy practice firm uh top 30 uh went for the ranks there obviously back when i started out it was a case of you learn everything you did audit you did a bit of tax you did the bookkeeping you did you did absolutely everything and then moved into the more specialist audit kind of sector field 
stuck around there and worked up the ranks to a level of senior manager. Uh, and then probably about, I think about 2011, kind of when the academy sector was kind of starting to kick off, I already had a couple of um, maintained school clients that we audited that I quite enjoyed. And um, I don't know, just um, one of them decided to convert to academy. Yeah, I'll be honest, I knew nothing about it, didn't understand it or anything, but I just basically learned alongside them and worked and supported them through that process. Um, and before you knew it, I became a bit of a specialist in, in the firm, drove that. We got more and more clients because we started marketing. We started doing blogs on our website to show that we were experts uh, and knew what we were talking about. And then, um, yeah, just kept ramping the clients through the door. It's a point where I effectively, when I left, I was deputy head of academies and also head of the internal audit function at, at that firm. And then, yeah, decided to, to move on to set up my own business at, at the age of 40. I thought, well, it's now or never. Let's give it a go. Um, and yeah, but um, obviously still wanted to keep keep a bit of get a bit of assurance around money. So I did the part-time gig, which was funny enough, was a, a client of mine. They approached me because their CFO was retiring. Uh, really liked that trust, liked the ethos, liked the culture. It seemed a bit of a no-brainer because the team were a, were a good fit and they were good, good, safe pair of hands. Um, so I went in there and then obviously, yeah, started up the business. So the business is mainly, my, my main clients are internal audit clients because I'm picking up that because accountancy practices are perhaps maybe being a bit too high in terms of fees these days for the for, for trusts. Uh, to go with so they're looking at smaller outfits such as myself um i also do training development so i do that for governing bodies and schools so to help upskill so that their governors who are volunteers have a better understanding of what finance is in schools which is very different um and then obviously i've done a few other bits like due diligence like sarah's suggested and also um interim uh, one interim role as well since then so it's been busy Wow. So everything that you're doing now is within the education sector, both through your employment, obviously, as a CFO, but also through your consultancy yeah. firm um, and internal audit within schools. That sounds like it would be interesting. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Sarah, um, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I kind of like it, though. So internal audit is all about obviously looking at those controls and procedures and making sure they're happening as they should be and as they're say they are and it's for the purposes of the trustees because they need to know those because of the risk element of them not working so it's really for their purposes uh, that the work's done and yeah it is, it is interesting you know some trusts from trust and the finance team feel sometimes you're out to get them but you know you're not you're there to help spot these things and actually make them better and improve their systems and give them recommendations because also i'm going around seeing other schools and trusts of how they're doing things there's no perfect one size fits all in this sector. There never will be. So if I see something that's working quite well, I'll say, well, if you thought about this idea and share that with them, now that might they might not go with it, but that's fine. I've done my bit in trying to help improve them and, and make their lives a bit better um, and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it can be a challenge at times. Yeah, I think the internal auditors that I know um, tend to, not be on the Christmas card list, shall we say, for most people in the business that they, they actually work for. Um, but and, and I think a lot of that is is just that almost misconception that they're there to find out where you've gone wrong rather than yeah, they're there to it. help you to do things better. Um, exactly and, 
I think it's probably the the marketing of internal auditors probably isn't as good as it should be because I think if you recognise that oh they're here to, to to make our lives easier suddenly it's like oh welcome aboard internal audit come and do your job but until that happens I think there'll always be a little bit of that friction yeah absolutely yeah and our, our final guest is um is Danny Sutton so um welcome aboard Danny hiya um, um, and. Daniel, I've I've known you for quite some time because you are you're part of the team at First Intuition. But for the listeners, do you want to give a bit of background about kind of who you are, where you how you got to where you where you got to now, what what it is you currently do? Um, yeah, so uh, basically, when I left school, I went and done the first year of sixth form. Um, decided that wasn't for me, and I didn't really sort of enjoy that way of studying. Um, so I thought maybe I could go into an apprenticeship where I'd be like, sort of learning on the job, uh, earning some money as well. So then I looked around for apprenticeships and that's when I found the apprenticeship which I started on, which was the level two apprenticeship at First Intuition. Um, and then from there, I've sort of built up. So I went on to a level four combined with level three apprenticeship uh, and then on to a level seven apprenticeship before completing my ACCA qualifications. Um, and that time I sort of went from doing the bookkeeping for the company into uh, more advanced roles than maybe creating budgets, um, looking at some of the some of the finance auditing as well. Uh, whereas now I've moved into a bit more of the sort of data management side as well as as well as just the finance centric side. Thanks. Cheers there, Danny. And I know that for the, the work that you do for us um, does involve the, the kind of the funding and the revenue side of things. And you're probably of the people in our team, the one that understands how funds get allocated to us um, more than anyone yeah. else. So it's and, and it's, you know, not the easiest thing in the world it's not like a someone sent you an invoice and you need to match it against the payment it's quite a considerable amount of work isn't it yeah the reports that we get given um, based off the funding we received are not necessarily the most easy to work out where the payments have been received and why they've been received so there's often there's often a lot of payments that we're expecting so they're fine but then there's also a lot of times where there's maybe differences in what we'd expect to receive on a monthly basis so they need to be investigated further and we're quite lucky that we've got sort of uh, a compliance team that we can work with as well to make sure that then payments that we're receiving are actually correct uh, and the reasons why they might be different to what we forecast. Yeah, so I, I've seen some of the spreadsheets that you operate in order to reconcile those things and I don't understand half the things that take place in those spreadsheets. <laughs> so it is definitely kind of a, one of the dark arts of finance is understanding the, the the ESFA and how the government allocate funding, particularly in our industry. And I've got a few wry nods in front of me from other people in the, on the panel. Um, before we actually kind of dig into kind of real detail of um, of the finance Kind of, of of kind of different schools and colleges, things like that. Um, I, I just wanted to kind of get a few ideas from from each of you about what you think are the the big challenges that schools, college, education are facing at the moment. Because all I see in the press is striking teachers, not enough money, cuts that need to be made, and and things like that. But you know, fr from your perspective, what are you seeing as the the, the big challenges? We start with you, Sarah. Uh, uh, trusts very much like individuals are have got this sort of financial challenge with the the huge increase in energy bills. Obviously, schools need to be heated; they they use electricity, to, and so a lot of schools are now coming out of the fixed deals that they had, and they have this exposure. And a bit like individuals, you know, 
you, you, we, we're still not quite sure what, where the prices were gonna, are going to be at. Um, and the, the, the cost increase has been huge for them to try and absorb. Um, and there's also this continued, as you've talked about, striking teachers, this continued pressure with salaries um, and, you know, staff striking predominantly over pay. Um, and where will that end up? And also for non-teaching staff, it's trying to re retain those staff. Um, you know, other people aren't attracted to the sector or they don't stay in the sector. Um, and so that is an ongoing issue for trust to kind of attract people. Um, and, and same with, you know, trying to recruit teachers into the profession. That has been an issue for a considerable amount of time that there's there's just not, you know, enough teachers joining. Um, so that that is definitely kind of the biggest challenges, I'd, I'd say, um, that I've seen that it, the sex is facing at the moment. And from... My work that I do, where I, I visit a number of schools and uh, I, I, I go in and give talks to people about, or talks to students about um, accountancy. I, I can't remember the time, the last time that I went to a particularly modern, well-appointed school. So most of the schools definitely around here in Essex are at least 20 years old, probably older than that. Probably not built with, you know, all of the modern kind of insulation and energy efficient heating and all those kind of things. So I can only imagine that those costs are going to be, you know, astronomical uh, as we've seen gas and electricity prices go up. Um, really interesting though to hear about that, about that non-teaching staff uh, and difficulties in terms of recruitment and retention for, you know, and I guess we're looking there at kind of admin staff, HR professionals, finance professionals like you guys to you know, actually staff that side of business. So I, I just wouldn't have thought about that. Uh, I would have just thought that the, you know, the key staff cost is, is teachers. And, you know, in general, there's only a finite number of jobs that a teacher can have, um, or they stopped it being a teacher. So it's kind of just making sure that they stay within education. They've got the right number, they should find their places. But I just didn't think about all of those other roles outside of it. Um, Phil, have you, are you seeing anything different or anything additional in terms of current challenges? Um, Definitely what Sarah said, 100%. Um, oh, God, how long have you got? Um, so, yeah, definitely on the energy bills, massive, massive issue. Um, yeah, and it's a bit of a, a same old thing, you know. If you are a school that maybe is struggling there financially, um, what do you do? Do you make the kids wear their coats in class? You're not going to make them do that. You know, because maybe some people forget that it's not their own house. They maybe leave doors and windows open when they don't need to. Mm -hmm. So that can prove to be changed. So there's a bit of a, a culture shift change piece there that needs to happen. Um, recruitment retention. Wow. Um, yeah, that's um, that, that's that's a beast in itself. Um, TAs is a real struggle at the moment. So. Um, the nature of uh, the children you're starting to keep see coming through now have needs, uh, so need a lot of support. Uh, and TAs are, are a massive part of that, um, but they cost money. Um, so there's only so many you can have, but equally, I say they cost money. A lot of TAs, what they earn, they could probably go and earn more on a checkout in Tesco's. And that's where we're in reality losing them to. Um, mm. And you, would, you wouldn't think that because of the skill set they've got in working with those children what the importance of their role but that is the reality 
um, it's saying I'm scratching my head out. I don't understand it. <laughs> so, yeah, and obviously talked about it, teachers' pay rises and strikes. A prime example on a part we're going to talk about a bit later. A prime example was last year. You know, all the guidance was saying you know budget for about a two to three percent pay increase, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, was the five percent mm. budgets were completely ripped up. Um, so, so that was a frustration. But cost of living, not com food. Think mm. about your, how much you know school meals. Yeah. So we we've just made a we now just increased our school meal prices. I've tried to hold off. I don't want to do it. I've got to. Mm. Our, our food costs have gone up fifty percent based on from last year. So uh, yeah, we are cooking more meals, mm. but yeah. So so that's a major issue. But I, I, it's the recruitment retention piece. You know, I, I even in our finance sector at schools, I'm, I'm you're hearing more and more when you look on Twitter. Business managers have been around a long time. They're just they're leaving. They're they're, they're done. They're tired. It is, it, you know, everything's finally got to them. And I think last summer was really tough. After, you know, you've gone through COVID, all the challenges that brought, you've worked your socks off. And then it was almost like having the rug pulled underneath you last year with, with the budget change. Um, and that was my first year of doing budgets. I've never, yeah, I was, I, was, I couldn't believe it. I was, this is ridiculous. Um, so yeah, so I think they're the main things. Interesting, go back to the energy thing, and you're talking about the buildings. Mm. So that's another major issue. So lots of schools, some schools are blessed with lovely new builds that have been built for them, but a lot are in old buildings. And you're right. So what we've done at my trust is we've got someone to go up with a drone. They've got the thermal imaging stuff, and they've done some scans of the tops of our buildings. And we've got one build at one of our schools. The roof is like glowing red. That all the, the the heat that is being lost out of that that so we've but the trouble is we haven't got the money to put on a new roof new roofs are a lot of money so you have we have to if you have, you have to bid for money from the government from the, this pot of capital money and all the other schools and trusts are bidding for it well and it's based on points scores and everything like that it's really competitive and it all boils down to whether you're you get enough points or not um which seems ludicrous because the government then beat you up if you don't balance your budget. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll help us out. So yeah, it, it, that's that's another thing is that is the age of buildings is another major issue. Definitely. Yeah. As I say, certainly something that I noticed. And I you know, within you know all of the things that you described there, it, it's you know every every one of those pressures has gonna is gonna have a direct impact on someone's learning. Because you know we we yeah. know that there is a link between you know temperature and cognitive function and how well you can concentrate. So you know if people say oh you can drop the temperature by three degrees, it's it, I think that if you drop the temperature from three degrees from twenty to seventeen, then people's cognitive function starts to decline. They can't concentrate as well, so learning's not going to be as impactful. And I think what you talk about teaching assistants and you know they can earn the same money, probably with a lot less hassle um, yeah. by working at Tesco's. We see the same things in industry like care, where we're, we're asking people to care after, you know, the most vulnerable people in society, and yet they can get paid more, you know, working behind a checkout in Tesco. And it's, you know, almost, a, you know, we don't really value the work that they deliver, even though it is essential, because, you know, needing a teaching assistant is usually because there are additional learning needs that need to be supported. So it's, yeah, it, it, you kind of see the, 
these things we're struggling with but when we you bring it home to this is the impact on you know on the people that we're going to be working with in four or five years time you know and, and the qualifications that, that they're going to come out with and I, think, so, I think and i think going on that so that you know these people have done it for a number of years as well and they love doing their job but but you know you think about they're going home and their their partner wife husband whoever it is they're saying to them look what what you know are you, you come in you know, i had a bad day the this child played up or something like that and they're just going what are you doing it for you, mm -hmm. we can earn more money you and you don't you don't need like you say you don't need the stress and hassle and because mm -hmm. of the cost of living pinch yeah. those conversations are far more frequent now mm -hmm. but I, I love that idea of sending a drone up with to, to look at where where the where the hot spots are in terms of in terms of heat loss i'm sure there are lots of other businesses out there that should be doing similar things yeah to look at you know where, where not, i know a man who can do it if they want <laughs> <laughs> excellent and finally danny um i know we haven't sent a drone up yet but no. um where where do you see you know we're a slightly different type of industry type of business where do you see current kind of pressures and challenges um yeah so definitely within the cost of living sort of the inflation that that, that does play a big impact to our business especially because we've moved from a more commercially based um to a business model to an apprenticeship based model so if you've got higher bills you can charge a higher price would sort of usually be the sort of standard thing you do on a commercial basis um but where we have got the apprenticeships now taking up around 70 percent of our business um the funding for apprenticeships is capped so where we're getting that higher everything's costing more money staff are wanting pay rises our profit margins are getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and where we are is wanting to grow as well that sort of will impact growth a little bit as well. And then, yeah, we obviously aren't going to be as profitable as we maybe could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's something that I, I do want to move on to. So you touched on it there, uh, Danny, that you know the, the, the revenue that we receive is, is static. Um, yeah. But in, in terms of how, how does, in, in a world where you're training apprentices, how, how, how does revenue work? How does... Um, yeah, so... Um, there's every different level sort of has a different funding band, which is the maximum amount of funding you can claim from the government for that apprenticeship. Um, and that will be based off the courses that you attend and the support that um, is provided um, and a few other factors as well. And at every level that that is capped to a certain amount. So that will impact the amount of funding that we basically receive. So if, the, if an apprenticeship, so for example, continues over a specific length of time that we've maybe said to it originally we're then not getting funding for that apprentice um and there's other issues as well with maybe some apprentices dropping off and where, where the way that the apprentice is funded it's 80 percent of the um apprenticeship is funded whilst the apprentice is on program and they have to go for a gateway which is an endpoint assessment and then we'll receive an additional 20 percent which is a completion payment and that's received all in one hit whereas the 80 percent is received on a monthly basis um, so if, if you do get someone um, come off the apprenticeship program or anything like that, we do sacrifice that 20 percent uh, up until that point. So there is there is knock on effects from that as well. Yeah. So effectively, for, for each apprentice that starts, there is an element of funding, depending on what which program they're doing. So yeah. say an apprentice comes on board and the, the funding for that program is, say, three thousand um, pounds, that three thousand pounds, 80 percent of it will be paid while they're studying over the length of their program. So say it's a year, yep. it'll be paid monthly over that year. And then that final 20% is only payable when they complete. 
Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So it's from, from the perspective of trying to battle against increased cost bases, things like that, that the way to, to try and manage that is by increasing student numbers and yes. trying to get more apprentices in to cover that, that, that increased cost base. Yeah, uh, especially where, if, where there's issues with you can't save any more cost uh, without the product becoming worsened. Um, yeah. It's important that, yeah, we get more people attending classes and more apprentices mm -hmm. signed up in order to get those mm -hmm. uh, sort of profit margins that we'd maybe desire. Yeah, it's, it's always a conversation I think we have down the internet where the, the, the conversation between profitability and quality, and we don't want to sacrifice yeah. quality, but by maintaining quality, you're actually taking a hatchet to, to any kind of profitability that might be there. Yeah, um, and you can see why other, you can see why other businesses would maybe take the view of not providing the support that we provide um in order to cut those costs to remain the same sort of margins that they're, they're receiving yeah yeah um sarah if i ask you a similar question so in, in your world of multi-academy trusts how how do schools you know how does the revenue work from schools how do they they, they generate that top line so we each school receives a, a general annual grant allocation, which is called referred to as GAG, um, and that will lay out what a school will receive in the academic year. So the academic year runs from September to obviously the end, the end of August. Um, and and there are different elements to that funding. I won't go into the detail because some of it's complicated. Um, but it, it represents sort of around 75% of total income for trust, the, the general annual grant allocation, the GAG statement. Um, and the trusts, well, multi-academy trusts, well, the schools will receive that at sort of end of February, March. So the sector would, would have a good idea what next year's allocation will look like financially, because um, over the next few months is when they start working on their budget. So it's kind of the, the, the first piece of the of the jigsaw really to to have that information to hand and the the revenue funding is calculated using pupil numbers taken from either the autumn census return or an agreed estimate of pupil numbers as outlined in the academy's funding agreement so that is the, the gag is is the majority of the funding there are other elements um that that schools will receive but most of it is the general annual grant which is based on pupil numbers which gives them an indicator of what their revenue will look like in the following year okay and you say that that's decided in february march do you, do you mean that's decided in february march for the funding for the next year that's right so for this february march schools will know what their general annual grant allocation will be for September onwards. And that you said is 75% of their income or, or roughly? Yeah, most yeah, most schools would be about 75% of their income. So and, it's the is, and then the, the remaining 25%, is that the bit that's based on pupil numbers? No, the, the general annual grant is based on pupil numbers. Okay. Um, there is some other funding elements that will be based on pupil numbers, but it will be things like pupil premium for, for disadvantaged students, uh, universal infant free school meals is another funding line, um, early years funding, um, and there's other bits and pieces. I mean, some schools are fortunate that they have facilities where they can do some lettings. So there might be some lettings income in there and some catering income, but the majority of the school's revenue will come from the general annual grant allocation, which is based on pupil numbers. Wow. Okay. Um, and Phil, from your, I guess from, uh, you, you're dealing with a very similar type of environment in terms of funding. 
Um, just, I guess, if there's anything you could add there, first of all, but also, how does that 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 revenue actually come to you? So, is, is it coming termly, monthly? How do you receive that? And do you actively look at ways of trying to increase that funding? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, just add on to what Sarah said as well. The, the other little issue is so it's because it's it's based on pupil numbers, but it's based on pupil numbers from the previous year. So, if we look at this current year right now so literally look this week i received my statements at my trust for my funding from september and it said the number of pupils in each school and how the funding calculates but those pupil numbers are the pupil numbers that were back recorded back in october 2022 so you're all see so if you're growing as a school you're so you're always a year behind so if I then I now get another 30 pupils come in the door on top of what I'd expect in September, but I haven't got funding for them. But I need to staff those kids. So you're right. So it's called, and they refer to that as lagged funding. So you're almost a year. So it's, it's, see what the Japlin Act. So you, you're really almost working a year behind every time. So when you're forecasting, you you, you know you you got you have to guess your pupil numbers a little bit. Hopefully, if you're a stable school, great. But if you're a school that's either seen drops in people numbers or uplifts, can be a bit tricky. And then you're trying to forecast what the government are going to give you as any percentage increase in funding. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that money, I mean, that so that money is confirmed as Sarah said as a statement which we will receive this week, and we get that fed in every month over the, over that academic year. So you'll get your first pot in September, right at the beginning of the month, start of October, et cetera. But then the other streams of funding, such as pupil premium, they come in quarterly. So pupil premium, you'll get uh, October, January, April, July. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not even like a normal quarter. <laughs> <laughs> uh and then universal free school meals is not is quarterly but different dates right so and then you get things like pe sports premium you get two lots and you get that in around i think it's the autumn and then another lot in the spring and it's seven twelfths and five twelfths of the of the overall funding <laughs> honestly it is an absolute it is a minefield um and when even going back to when we i used to do the auditing of them right actually doing the accounts auditing not internal auditing you know you, you need to know your way around how to test what income they should have on their books when you're doing a proof of total income total test mm. you gotta know your way around it so yeah it can be quite complex and as sarah said you know the trouble is the schools that have got a high reliance on the on the gag money where it says right 75 percent but there's some schools they will have like particularly primaries where they don't really have the facilities to create extra funding mm -hmm. they are really reliant on their gag they won't be able to generate extra thing like let-ins and stuff like that so you know that funding and pupil numbers is absolutely is absolutely crucial to how they can operate and run on a day-to-day -day basis Wow. Um, I mean, it, it, first of all, it doesn't surprise me that anything to do with the government has got confusing payment terms, because as someone who's taught tax 
and knows that there's a separate set of payment dates and payment rules for every different tax the government have got knows how confusing it is and that whole idea of different quarters it's yeah you're right there is no standard quarter as far as the government are concerned and yeah. so your funding for for next year is going to be based on this year's figures this year's is there kids, no reconciliation yeah. at the end that says you actually have more students so here's some extra money uh, sometimes if you if you have got if you're if you're like like a growing school that maybe is, has got so let's say you've gone from a two form entry school to a three form entry school so you've so in that first year rather than taking on 60 kids you're now taking on 90 you can apply to get what's called top-up funding and that mm -hmm. can either come from the government or from your local council right so one of my schools is in that position so we are getting funding from kent to help us in that bridge that gap but it's not there's no guarantee yeah because it almost sounds to me like there's a, a disincentive <laughs> to be a good school that people want to go to because if you're if you're an, it's an outstanding school and parents want to send their kids there and you're growing student numbers you're not actually getting the funding to support those growing numbers for a delay yes and no time. but if you get that get they get to that ceiling mm. great you don't yeah. have to worry do you and um, yeah. my my old primary school when I was a kid, I was governor there until last August. Yeah. And um that, that you know, one of the most popular schools around max always maxed out in terms right. of people numbers. So if you, you you can get there, so I'm expecting our one that's growing, that's gone for free for entry. I'm expecting that in four years' time to be fully maxed out. Okay. Okay. So it's, it just seems crazy. Um, you got keep you got to keep the reputation going because if we then yeah. have an Ofsted that is a bad Ofsted, yeah, we won't get those numbers because yes. reputation will come be hit. Yeah, because it is, and, and that Ofsted rating is something the parents will look at. And you're absolutely right. I, I've I've seen from schools in my area uh, how an Ofsted rating can change, you know, the, yeah. the desirability of going to a school. Um, I can see Danny laughing there because he he may be maybe maybe an alumni from one of the schools that I, I talk about there. Um, I'm going to move on from kind of revenue to, to looking at um, kind of the bottom line. And I'm, I'm going to kind of just have a little brief chat with Danny because from, from our perspective at First Intuition, um, <coughs> we're, we're in a position where we, um, we get our revenue from the ESFA, we've got our cost base, and then, you know, if it's a good year, there'll be a surplus at the end of that year. And what that enables us to do is it enables us to do new things. So as we've seen in the, the last couple of years, we've taken on a new premises and it was by being able to be really prudent for a few years, we were able to generate enough surplus to be able to move to a new premises. And you know, recently, um, you know, Danny, we've moved to and um, we've started running courses in um, South End. So we've opened up a new center there and by a, but being able to manage our finances in that way to generate a surplus over a few years, it enables us the opportunity to make those kind of investments. And I see that as something that kind of a normal business would do. Is that kind of how you would see it, Danny, as well? Yeah, I think so. I think the sort of reinvestment is obviously beneficial because there's, there's two two things you can really do with it, which is either take it as dividends or reinvest it back into the company and try and grow. Uh, and I think we're quite lucky in the fact that that's the that's sort of mind frame that we're in is we will reinvest them funds and try and grow and get bigger to provide uh, the apprentices and the other students with the support that we can. Mm. Now, what I kind of would like to ask you, Sarah, is that from a school perspective, and we had a brief chat about this beforehand, um, you know, 
is a school able to work on that model and say, we've got this funding, if we make a surplus, then we can effectively look at engineering a surplus for a few years to fund something big in terms of a bigger project in the future. Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, it's been, it has, you know, there's been a lot of schools out there that have sort of sat on reserves and you can earmark reserves for a particular project. Um, that's that's not a problem. Um, so yeah, that, that does happen. Um, but, you know, really sort of things like GAG are, the general annual grant is supposed to be used for the day-to-day -day running of the school. Um, so that's kind of earmarked for that. But yeah, you know, I've I've worked in trusts where they've decided that they, you know, need need to have a, I don't know, IT capital capital expenditure plan and to, to enable their growth, they need to put some things in place or improve some buildings and perhaps they've missed out on a on a, a government bid for some money, um, but they feel the work needs to be done. Um, so if they do have, um, you know, reserves and that they can, they can assign those reserves to, to carry out a project like that. Right. OK. And Phil, from, from your perspective, is that something that you do actively with the schools you work with or do you work on a, a, a on kind of a different model in terms of those kind of long term investments? Um, yeah. So one of my trust where I work, we, we, we've got a fairly healthy level of reserves. Um, so so yeah we're, we're we're looking to utilize that to to improve the infrastructure because that's one big thing i've picked up i've come in and i'm looking at the infrastructure and going this isn't good enough for me I, I, this should be better to make everyone's lives to work better and more efficient um so you know i've in the in one in year one i've already overhauled the phone system so that we've now got every each school had a different phone system <laughs> So it, now we've got one phone system. It's the same everywhere. Um, and we can, you know, we've got mobile apps so we can, you know, work from home and still be in the office um, and all that, which is what I had at, back in commercial practice. So, and what you see in most companies these days. So, yeah. Um, and also we try and earmark, earmark the money. So I go back to when I saw about those capital funding bids earlier. So sometimes to help you with your bids, the ESFA kind of expects you to make a contribution towards the, yeah. the cost of, let's say, a roof, a new roof. Um, so if you've got the reserves to do that, you can say, yeah, we're going to contribute 20%, 10%, 5% of the overall cost of that. And that helps, again, gets you a couple more extra points, depending on how much you're going to contribute uh, when you do as part of the, the bidding. So the, the the point system you've mentioned a couple of times now, Phil, how how do you get a point? What what are points for? Um, I'll be honest, I don't know fully all the ins and outs. So what you you tend to find in the sector is there's lots of um, building consultant companies out there who do on a bit of a no win no fee basis. Mm -hmm. So what they do is you you get them in the door. You say right, we need a, I'll stick with the roof example. We need a new roof. And then they basically project manage it. So they go out, they get the free. You have to again. You have certain rules in schools where if it's over certain values of expenditure, you have to get like free quotes. Yeah, we're going for a proper tender process. They coordinate all that at no, you know, at no cost in terms of if they don't win it. So then they do it, and then they actually submit all the documents that need to go into this portal to help you secure the points um so it is based around things like your health and safety assessment around it the needs you know so prime example is if you've got 
if you're going for a bid that's maybe a major health and safety risk, let's say your fire safety is well out of date and you need all new fire safety equipment. Well, that's something to think about. It's a major health and safety risk. Yeah. So you're going to get more points for that. Um, I mentioned if you contribute some of your own reserves, you get more points. Other things, if you if if you're on the latest funding agreement that's available from the government, you get an extra bonus point. Right. It, it, it sounds crazy, but it's all these different strands. The vast bulk of it is points based around the, the actual bid itself. Mm-hmm. But there's these extra little bonus ones that you just might get you through the door to win the money that you can pick up. Wow. Again, articles of association. If you've got the latest ones, you'll get a point, an extra point. <laughs> so that, before, I get on my soap, before I get on my soapbox, that's a little bit about the government trying to control trusts because they want them on the latest gov- funding agreements and they want them on the latest articles. It's a deliberate yeah. ploy. No, I know, I, know I, I can understand that because effectively you're asking someone to move from one commercial contract to another in in, in another in a, in a non-school environment. It will be we'd like you to move from this contract to another contract, and it's well, what am I going to get in return for it? And I guess they're they're offering a sweetener to try and get you to move to the contract that they want you to be on. Yeah. Um, but it, it does seem awfully kind of like this kind of a little mini industry of playing the game. Of, yeah. You know, how how can we gain the system to get the thing that we want out of this? Yeah, um, and obviously there's contractors out there who, that you know they say, "Oh, we've won X amount of work. We got we were successful in nine out of ten bids we made last year. Come and we'll do your bid for you." You get all that as well when it comes around to the SIF bidding process. So that's around just before Christmas, the window closes. You know that's prime audit season in the academy world as well. Honestly, it's. For the CFOs, it's it's a fraught time, um, and the amount of email spam you get as well. You know, are you considering your SIF bid and all this stuff? It's it's annoying as well. Well, so and and it, it comes down to this this point based system, and and I just kind of you know how much of that point based system is linked to kind of educational outcomes. It's not right. Okay. So if, if, if I'm saying that, you know, if we invest in certain, say, technology suites, things like that, and it's going to uplift GCSE results, improve uh, progression, things like that, that's not something that would get me a load of points. No, because it's it's mainly around your buildings. And it's, right, okay. That's what it's mainly for. It's things like new roofs, new windows, fire equipment, that kind of stuff. It's yeah. not if you, you can't bid for ICT equipment, that right. kind of stuff, you've got to fund out of your own pocket. Or get a grant from somewhere or something like that yeah um yeah it, it is mainly around your buildings and what what's also com- makes it even more complex so each school there's a put you each every school gets a pot of money which is capital funding again some weird formula again slightly based on pupil numbers but if i wanted to say on average you're looking around 20 grand a year to kit out to do it's special- total yeah to kit Absolutely. out on whatever capital type money um so so if it, when it's big building projects you've got going for what's called the sif bidding process but if you're a trust that's got i think it's five schools and three thousand pupils mm-hmm. you automatically get this almost big pot of money by default and you're allowed to do whatever you want with it right so again it's all about driving people to grow their trusts get more schools on board so they yeah. can give you this pot of money rather than going through the whole bidding process. Okay. 
So each school gets a £20,000-ish amount for all their capital expenses. I'd say that on average, yeah. yeah. Other than, facility, other than facilities, which is a bit for. Yeah. Wow. I mean, when you think about the, the capex that goes into a school, 20 grand's not going to go very far. No, so you have to almost save it up or yeah. use some of your revenue funding, I gag, to help yeah. top up stuff. Yeah. I mean, having to having to having had to buy a couple of new computers for our team recently, twenty thousand pounds doesn't buy much in the way of computers that are actually functional nowadays. You know, and that's before you even start looking at other equipment that's needed in science labs, in kind of like cookery classes, woodwork labs. They're called labs, don't they? Um, you know, sports equipment, all those kind of things. It's yeah, doesn't seem like a huge amount of money when you've got schools that have got you know could be a thousand kids there. Yeah. Wow. I know okay. it is. Um, as I say, every day is a school day in a school. And I think <laughs> that, that became evident when COVID hit and schools were very operational. Yeah. Oh yeah, massive. So oh, there, was this, there was the clam. That's why the government did all that donation of laptops. Yeah, schools couldn't afford new laptops. Everyone had to work from home, or didn't have the appropriate kit that was good enough. Right, it okay, wasn't there? Yeah, you know, and you know, to try and operate, you know, class classes and students working from home, and yeah, yeah it, it, the infrastructure just was not there. Um, and I think that the, they're hoping that lessons have been learned from that. But yeah whether that is the case and like you say the, the money just doesn't stretch that far for that for that kind of technology and and as we all know it's really impacted students yeah mm. they're much further behind than they should be and there's this massive catch-up that needs to, to somehow take place so the, I, I'm aware that from definitely the things that I've seen in schools and people that I know in schools um Sarah that there there is this catch-up that um where, where students have missed out on a significant amount of schooling um now according to the government there is that there's funding that they've thrown at catch up and tutoring and things like that is that something that you're seeing going into schools as well is there is there any funding to help you know these young people to get back to where they they should be by any other normal year benchmark there has been funding um that, that schools have received to try and you know appropriately called catch up funding but they're they're also finding it you know there's there's all sorts of implications of of you know the lockdowns that took place um and you know there's students that have come out of that with you know mental health really struggling with their mental health it, it, it's not just sort of you know the pure educational outcomes that they're, they're needing all sorts of other support as well it, it's sort of not not a straightforward situation and and you know it, it's you know it's far reaching and you know the, it's not just cured by some funding at a particular period in time that you know i mean they are saying that they they are the funding they've increased the government is going to increase funding um to levels from sort of 2010 so that you know there's more money available but whether that you know all these things cost and whether whether that is enough money and 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 also you know how that money is spent in schools and is it sp spent on the right things and if you're in a in a school in a deprived area you might have different issues to deal with compared to somewhere else so yeah i mean it, yeah it's it's yeah it's diff it's di it's challenging it's difficult and is there is there enough money in the system with all the other issues that are now currently going on mm. Uh, thanks, Sarah. And uh, I think that 
I know that many of my colleagues, I think, complained about schools during COVID in that they weren't doing enough in terms of homeschooling and people complaining about, oh, we got a worksheet at the beginning of the week and that was it. But from what you've said there, that you know, a lot of that can be traced back to the fact that the, the technology, the infrastructure, the training just wasn't there to enable people to do virtual lessons in the way that so an organization like first intuition did but then you know we've got the ability to be more agile and we've got the ability you know as, as you know danny mentioned earlier you know, we we had you know reserves of profits that we'd we'd set aside for expansion that we could actually use to make sure we have the technology in place to be able to deliver whereas i, I doubt any school had a pandemic contingency fund back in 2019 <laughs> ready to go. Um, I want to kind of look a little bit something that has been kind of you know, we've kind of skirted around a little bit and that's um, how, how kind of budgeting and forecasting works because we talked a bit about revenue and where revenue comes from and it seems to me like it that from a school college perspective your revenue is very much fixed for you and then you've got to live with that revenue for a year unless you can kind of make other adjustments. As Danny said, revenue in my world is based precisely on number of students that start and hopefully those students completing. Um, how does that lead on to kind of budgeting and putting together a budget? What should your budget look like? Because, you know, I know that from Danny, well, Danny, you can say, but um, you know, from our perspective, we're looking at hopefully budgeting to make some kind of surplus but phil what does what does your you know your annual budget look like or is it an annual budget is it is it longer than that shorter than that um so reality is it's annual what so so we've kind of spoke on now we're getting like schools are getting informed to what their 23 24 academic year allocation is going to be yeah when it comes around, when it comes for the academy sector, when it comes around to the end of July, every trust has to submit to the government at what's called a budget forecast return. Mm -hmm. So in that return, they basically have to say what their budget is going to be for 23, 24, but they also the next the following two years. Right. Uh, and also that's not just your income and expenditure, that's also what your reserves are going to be as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Well as I've we've kind of alluded it's, it's it's a bit of a crystal ball job you can yeah. now you've got your funding confirmed for 23 24 and you got you start in dribs and jabs will start getting confirmation about the other pots like pupil premium etc we'll have a bit of a bit of a good stab at next year's budget and have a bit of a realistic idea idea the second year a bit more challenging I'll have a bit more of an idea around pupil numbers, but I won't know what kind of levels of government funding are going to go up by. So I'll have to do a bit of a guesstimate of percentage increase. And then year three, I'll be honest, most schools in year three just cannot forecast that and usually show horrendous losses mm -hmm. um, because they they just can't they can't forecast it with any re any great accuracy. So. They almost show the worst case scenario mm -hmm. um and usually when you get to year three it's nowhere near as bad for some schools it will be but the vast majority that's the case but you just can't forecast accurately because the government aren't giving you accurate forecasts in advance of what they're going to do mm -hmm. um so it, it, yeah it's a massive challenge and then obviously you go back to last year crikey uh, you know i remember in july because you have to get your trust board to sign off the budget 
Mm-hmm. I remember doing our trust board on a Monday night, got it all signed off, approved, no problem. Literally, the next morning was the 5% pay increase announcement. And and you then and then you got within you got two weeks to to submit your budget to the ESFA. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to rewrite that budget, you've then got to schedule another meeting in with your trustees. There just there just wasn't time. So we just submitted our budget as we did it at that point, and then revisited it. Because again, that was the other thing: the the pay increases were announced, but then have to go for a consultation, and that yeah. wasn't confirmed until actually November officially. Mm. Some schools bit the bullet and just paid it because mm. they felt confident, but we actually held off. We were like, we're not going to do it until it's official. And then it's backdated. So they, in December, they all got their pay increase backdated to September. So they got a nice little almost Christmas bonus. And if that 5%, because, you know, you, you say that it's, you know, suddenly they announced 5% pay increase, it wasn't factored into your budget at all. If that 5% pay increase, turns your budget into one that shows a deficit what happens then so i've now submitted my budget to the government saying i'm going to make a loss yeah so um, there's there's some rules around that so if you if if when you're doing that budget forecast if at the end of the year three you show you have run out of money right from you including your brought forward reserves okay if you show then that they are on they're straight away onto you and they need to know how what you're doing to address it what steps are you taking, etc. So most schools try to avoid submitting a budget that shows they're going to see all their reserves wipe out. Um, some will lose all their reserves before them, mm-hmm. potentially. So yeah, so with the government, you're expected to then basically cut your cloth accordingly. Mm-hmm. So that means they, you know, you got to look at things like headcount, redundancies, cutting other costs around books, stationery, reducing spend putting a freeze on spend mm. saying teachers you can't no more but you can't buy anything else in terms of materials for the classroom mm. no spending i've seen that in schools um so yeah it's when you get into that point it's it, they're the horrible conversations that the finance people never they just we don't want to have them mm. we want to help the schools as much as we can but at the end of the day we've got to balance the books yeah and what's your experience of budgeting sarah in, in schools and colleges the same as feels to be honest you know that the further into the future you go the less accurate it is it and it's hard to predict you know you, you're also in in you know teachers in their sort of career path they can progress mm-hmm. um up the pay scales so you're trying to have a discussion with hr and decide whether people are going to actually progress or not um and and that's a bit of a tactical game of if you've not got the funds, you're going to not allow teachers to progress. You're going to find a reason for teachers not to be able to progress and end up on a, a higher pay scale and receive a higher salary. Um, and yeah, it is all quite tactical to try and ensure that, you, you know, you you can produce a balanced budget. But like I say, you know, further into the future, it's more and more difficult. Obviously, the government, especially last year with announcing that pay rise, just as everyone had spent months producing their budgets, last minute to, to hit everyone with that. And, you know, there were there were trusts that had submitted budgets already. They had gone to the um, ESFA, mm. it, you know, they'd, they'd, and people had broken up as well. And, you know, not everyone works throughout the year. And, and you know, they're in this difficult place that already the budget was out today and they're not in September. 
and you know as Phil's touched upon it, it it's 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 you know these things come around and then obviously there's been you know the government is you know there's been a lot of changes um within government as well so you don't quite know what the next person who comes along what ideas they might have um yeah it, it's it's really difficult and you know three years isn't a long time and in a, in a commercial business three years is not a long time and you, you you'd be able to predict with a certain amount of certainty but yeah definitely education it, it it brings its challenges and you know staffing cost is their biggest cost so you do need to try and get that right because it can, it can make your you know if you get it wrong and you're reporting a you know sort of a balanced budget and then you, you're you're in a huge amount of deficit you have got to kind of show how you're going to cut that and and bring that budget back in line um but yeah you know it is what it is but yeah every year and, and you just don't know what 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 curveballs you're going to get and you think you've you've finished and it's been put to bed and you can move on to the next deadline because it, it is you know very deadline driven and there's lots of deadlines throughout the year and you know as a finance team there doesn't ever seem to be that time where you have that quieter times to get on and and look at other things within within the team it's you know there's there's always another impending government deadline of something that needs to be submitted or another meeting to attend and yeah it, it yeah it's it's not easy mm. I think the other frustration thing as well is sometimes if you make adjustments to your budget because you're worried about getting near to deficit or you are in deficit and you make those adjustments the annoying thing is then when the government do this sudden oh we found this pot of money here's a load of funding everyone but if you knew that was coming you maybe didn't have to do what you'd had to done the last two or three months and that's the frustrating thing because effectively then you've you've, you've not you've affected that child those children's education for another two or three months would it, you know, why the surprise? Surely they knew that pot of money was there. Come on, they must have known. That and that's a, that's again that's another frustration. Mm-hmm. And I think it is that kind of thing where it's that you think about the young person at the end of it, and the young person's education that will have suffered as a result of that. And and you know that's that's as you say, if the government knew about it, poor communication has meant that there's going to be a group of young people that are not going to get. The education that you wanted them to um or, or the quality of education that you wanted them to um so just that just you know I'm, I'm, you, you're probably going to shout at me now but when you've submitted that budget um you know by the nature of what phil and you said in terms of your revenue being agreed from year before's figures the lion's share of your expenses i'm guessing is probably staff costs yeah, uh, staff and facility costs. Right. Those staffing costs are set by um, kind of salary scales, and you know they're, they're all driven by central government policy. So, what if you set that budget at the beginning of the year? Surely, you're going to pretty much achieve that budget. You're not going to have any because you know in commerce, it's I set a budget for the next year, and if I don't hit my sales targets by ten percent, it's got a massive devastating impact on my bottom line. But Surely you're not going to have those kind of big shocks or, or am I completely wrong there? Well, teachers do leave jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, your staffing structure at the beginning of the year mm. could look very different at the end of the year. Um, and obviously there's also the challenges of recruitment of I'm just I'm going to just use teaching staff here, but yeah. there are challenges within the sector of recruiting teaching staff. Then, as we've discussed, you know, they're on they they 
progress through their career and so that their pay scale changes. So um, what trusts tend to try and do is a teacher would have been with the trust for a length of time and they would have progressed. And they'll what they'll try and do is try and then recruit someone at a lower pay scale so that they can have a bit of a saving. Or if if it's getting towards the end of the academic year, it might actually be more cost effective to just have someone on supply than actually recruit someone on a permanent basis because they'll be in this position where they have to pay that teach if they recruited that teacher in say May June that they'll have to pay that teacher over the summer holidays so there's a saving that could be made there as well so it's yeah you know or you could have a teacher off sick and then you've got to also rely on supply staff again you know COVID was a huge problem there lots of people um being ill with COVID and having to isolate so there was this you know huge issue of trying to find supply staff to so that the school could remain operational when they were open so you know or if someone's gone off on maternity leave there's all things like that sickness maternity leave um, people leaving that your staff instructor at the beginning of the year by the end of the year could look actually quite different and and there's certain subjects are really really difficult to recruit you know there's just not the teaching stuff maths has been one for a few years and the sciences um that you know there just isn't that pool of teaching staff there to try and recruit so you you might go in with the idea that you want to teach recruit a teacher at a certain pay scale but there, there aren't any teachers yeah out there at that pay scale and then you end up recruiting someone at much higher so yeah yeah you know the the biggest area of cost is you know staff but yeah what your your structure can look at look like the beginning of the year to the end yeah Mm. totally different for for many different reasons Mm. Mm. wow so it's it's yeah very very different to when you're in that environment where i'm just buying and selling stuff and my mark, you know, my fixed overheads are relatively fixed. And, you know, everything is based on do I deliver in terms of revenue? And if I deliver in terms of revenue, that filters straight down to the bottom line. Well, you're effectively the revenue is the only thing that's fixed. Um, there are some other costs, but other things are, are about, you know, what actually happens over the course of that academic year. Danny, back, back to something that, uh, that seems a bit more a bit less alien to me how in your world how, tell, tell me about how budgeting works um so the budgeting works sort of there might be some for, for example cost wise it's pretty straightforward we mm-hmm. estimate the cost like, like any normal business would do effectively uh in terms of revenue and um, the commercial revenues often relatively straightforward to sort of predict um because we can use sort of trend analysis to do things like that when it comes to the apprenticeship side of things the short term is much easier to predict um, because we're paid on a monthly basis to 80 percent so we sort of always know that that's going to come in for most students uh, that we've got whereas the 20 percent is more difficult to predict because it depends on when the person finishes so if someone fails an exam they'll finish later so that's a little bit of an issue there with sometimes forecasting in the short term in the longer term um, there are also a bit of issues with regards to if them funding bands were to change the revenue that we might receive would, would obviously differ as well. So you can't plan too far ahead because you're a little bit at liberty with what the government do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the model that we've got now, when I first started um, sort of six, seven years ago, um, we was a very large commercial-based business and we didn't have any uh, apprenticeship side of income really. Whereas now with 
moved the model sort of completely over where we're much more apprenticeships focused now as opposed to the commercial side of it. So maybe five, six years ago, we wouldn't have forecast that as potentially happening. So seeing how the model changes as we move forward will also impact the forecasting too. So. Excellent. And I mean, I think you were very kind about the um, about funding changing and funding rules change because we did have a significant change in funding rules that happened with this funding year. Um, and I think we found out about it two weeks before the beginning of the funding year. The ESFA released us. I think we had a total of six weeks notice from draft to new rules coming in, which caused absolute havoc. Um, and then I guess the, the, the other challenge that, that we've seen is that we don't have that, not that fixed revenue because our revenue is dependent on signups. And um, we, we had a strange situation, didn't we, Danny, this year where we hit our budget in terms of the number of people starting apprenticeships, but we were quite significantly down on our actual revenue just because of the different mixture of apprenticeships that people did. So we have more people doing low value apprenticeships, fewer high value apprenticeships, and that just yeah, turned the, uh, our budget upside down. Yeah, and also the type of way that people are funded, because there's a difference between levy payers and non-levy payers. Um, so with a non-levy payer, you'd expect a uh, contribution from them, which is a cash contribution, which would be taken up front usually. Um, whereas we didn't have, well, a lot of the people we signed up were a levy or, fully funded so then we didn't have that sort of initial cash injections that although will be taken it's just a knock-on effect uh, from what we initially forecast okay <laughs> it's yeah i think anything as we said i said to phil earlier anything dealing with the government of funding is um yeah requires its own language i think to to adequately describe that um we have only got a, a short while left because i know that the, all, all of my guests have got other things to do um, this afternoon. Um, I, I just kind of like to ask each of you a couple of, just two things really to end with. Um, and I, I'm just to give you kind of warning, Phil, I'll start with you and then we'll go on to Sarah and then on to Danny. Um, but I think there's been a lot of talk uh, throughout the last hour or so about kind of issues that we're facing and about um, kind of, you know, maybe problems with funding and the squeezes that are there. Um, but we all, you know, are in education and we've all been working in education for a number of years and there's probably a reason that we do it so uh, you know for me i i just love seeing people developing their careers and that that's what gets me out of bed in the morning is you know knowing that that i'm helping people to develop in their careers and i, I get a massive buzz when i you know like you know sarah seeing you you know however many years since you were in a classroom and seeing your development and running your own business, that is just amazing. Uh, and, you know, at, at some point I taught you in a classroom and you've just done amazing things. And those journeys I love to see. And that's that's what's so special for me about working in education. So you know, for each of you, I, I just kind of like to, to kind of, you know, end with a bit of positivity and just kind of like, just, you know, if you could just kind of like think or, or kind of, just tell me what what is brilliant about working in finance in a, in an education environment, um, or what's brilliant about working in education, and also you know if you could change one thing, you know, and you could make one thing different um, that would you know maybe improve your job or improve finance and education, just one thing that you could either wave a magic wand or if you were in power in government, what one thing would you change to make things better? So Phil, I said I pick you, um, so. What's great about working in finance, working in, in education and finance? 
Um, I think it kind of goes with what I said earlier, a bit like every day being a horrible part of school day. Um, just, uh, I, particularly in the last year, um, obviously when you're auditing schools, uh, I felt I, I knew I knew quite a lot. Uh, I saw myself as a bit of an expert and everything. I, I'm not going to lie. But when you jump that other side, you know, I probably knew about seventy percent in reality, mm-hmm. and it's it's just unbelievable. It's a minefield, you know. You know particularly, uh, probably a bit more when I'm working, I'm doing a part time role. Um, but every day is just a different challenge. Um, you can see why people struggle to get the day to day done in schools. Um, uh, yeah, I think the one bit that does fascinate me a little bit is the lack of commerciality um there's a real lack of understanding of that you know just a simple thing where my trust had some good reserves in the bank and we never once put them in a deposit account until i've come <laughs> into power so our interest we generated last year was 300 quid um we're now putting it monies into various deposit accounts and so we've earned 600 pound in two months right <laughs> you know it just there's that lack of commerciality and you know again i get approached oh can we let this hall out someone wants to not well I don't want to let it out i said someone wants to use a school hall can that happen i said yeah i said well they why why don't want to use it oh well they're going to charge for children's coming during half term i said right so um, we're going to charge them then why, why do you want to do that well they're using their gas or electric someone's got to open up school mm-hmm. that's a cost to us so we need to cover those costs. Yeah. But it's for the community. <laughs> We're a business. It's not all giving away for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and business is education. We need to cover those outlays. Otherwise, it's going to fetch your ability to buy books, pens and pencils. And they just, that's the bit. The commerciality bit is really missing. Yeah. Um, so uh, it just fascinates me. Like I say, every, day's, every, every school's different. Every person's different. Everyone's unique. Every day is so it's that and that's the variety I love about it. Yeah, uh, and it's the giving back. You know, I, I think I've done well for myself to be honest. From where I came from, with my family's history in terms of academic mm-hmm. background, um, and if I can help improve the lives of others, then then that's what I'll, I'll try and do to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Um, as for the last question, government, <laughs> I've type question: What would I change? I think it's, it's that unknown. It, I, I'd like some more certainty, particularly around year two. I, I, I'd, let, I'd let the government off over with year three, but year two, come on, that's where we need a bit more certainty around the funding. I can't see why they can't forecast that. Mm. Excellent. I, I love that point about being a bit more commercial because you know if you think every single school, well, near enough every single school is going to have a theatre you know, it, it, somewhere in its in its grounds, it's gonna it's got sports sports facilities, it's got halls, um, it's it's got loads and loads of classrooms and um, and art studios, dance studios, and there, there's no reason why they can't be used more. You know, and you know we always talk in other industries about sweating the assets of the business, and you know that, that, that it's 
you know, if you put all of those facilities into any town centre and said, look, we've got a new theatre, we've got a new sports centre, um, you know, the town will go absolutely crazy because it's got all of these great facilities. They've all got those facilities. It's just they tend to be chained up in the in the evening when people want to use them or at weekends if people want to use them, unless you've got a school that's very, very commercially focused. So I, I really like that point. Um, Sarah, what about you? Well, what's drawn me to the sector um, is definitely been the is is the change, which is which is a blessing and a curse. But it does mean that you know the sector is it's a new sector, you know, where it was formed in sort of 2010, 2011. and you know it, nothing stay, stays still for very long. So you know, and and that that is you know that can be great, but it is a curse, as we've we've touched upon that. Um, and and I've. You know, I think I'm drawn to it because you can you can go in and make quite a difference as a qualified professional person. You can see a trust struggling with, you know, it's not necessarily the basic, but I can go in because I'm not necessarily involved in the day to day. I can go in and see what the issues are pretty quickly and give advice and guidance and help support them. And, and then, you know, make quite a difference um, in a short space of time. And that that always appeals to me that I can go in, make a quite a bit good difference, sort of empower the staff, the team that are already there to be able to to continue that work and move it forward. So that for me is probably my, the biggest draw um, to the sector. Um, and again, like Phil, with regards to um, government and the lack of notice of, of things changing, which, you know, it's we're in challenging times already um, to, be, to be told of last minute, you know, pay rises, just as an example, it just makes the job even harder. Um, there's a huge amount of governance, you know, and submissions that have to be done throughout the year. And yeah, to have that which is caused caused by you know the government that should should you know there's they're supposed to support trusts as well to a degree um and to make that the job so much harder um you know and trying to predict where where you know your your trust will be at in a year to three years time um yeah I, I do think that they they must know and they must have a bit of an an idea on on funding moving forward um i can't believe it's always on the back foot which it does seem to be especially when since i've been involved in the sector that does seem to be the case and it's actually got much worse um and that whether that is all in line with the turmoil that has been going on in government um yeah it it, it could be but yeah it, it does make it difficult mm. i think having uh, is it three education ministers in the last year probably hasn't helped has it um, and I think we're on a merry-go-round now where we're giving people a second crack at it, aren't we? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and Danny, what about um, what about you? Um, I would say initially I wasn't actually drawn to the education centre. I just really wanted a role in accountancy, which is why I applied for the job as a low-level apprenticeship. Um, but since working in, in the sector, I've quite come to enjoy the problem-solving side of it and the issues that arise as, as part of being in that sector. Uh, and also the growth that we've experienced throughout the time that I've worked for the company. Uh, it's been quite exciting and that ever-changing environment, new premises, for example, and new staff members. It's, a, it's quite exciting workplace to work in uh, in that regard. And then if I was to say something I'd want to change from the government, uh, it would be that 20% completion payment being made at the end because we are supporting the apprentice throughout the 
level of the program we're still providing the classes to put it on them passing the exam at the end of it to, in order to release 20 percent of the funding which is quite a significant chunk um seems a bit ludicrous really <laughs> that we'll, we'll send that quote directly i think yeah. to the skills minister i think that <laughs> definitely one that catches the attention but no thanks that thanks to, to all three of you for um for coming along today it's been a really really fascinating discussion and i know that our listeners are going to get absolutely loads out of it so um thank you very much phil thank you sarah and thank you danny um if anyone has got any questions, then um, feel free to email me directly and I can get in touch with um, with any of our panellists today uh, and kind of ask them any queries that you might have. Um, I'm about a quarter of the way through the questions that I would like to ask you. I mean, I, I've really focused on kind of like what I refer to in old terms as PL. Um, I haven't really looked at all at kind of asset bases and what reserves look like and stuff like that. So, you know, th there's probably scope to do round two and round three at some point if we ever had the inclination to look at schools balance sheets. But um, we're yet to decide on our next industry forum, which will be in about um, three months time. So if anyone has got any, um, any ideas, any industries that they want me to look at, feel free to get in touch. But once again, thanks to all the panellists. Thank you very much for listening and we'll catch up with you very soon.